sometimes what you really need to hear burns at first. Those of you with a spouse like me know this because it's a daily experience. My wife is nearly 100% right about everything. But rarely, if you're like me, do you take your spouse's wisdom. I get defensive, as you probably do too, because I want to make my own decisions. I don't want to agree with my wife, who's actually a lot smarter than me. And this can take, I think, different forms in this as well. After years of drinking soda, with the blood pressure to show it, your doctor then pleads with you to switch it for water. You know their rights, but switching feels like a piece of you, the soda piece, is going to die. Or your anxiety has been through the roof, and weirdly enough, since the advent of social media. Your friend suggests, maybe you should delete your apps. Maybe don't go online. Maybe you take up reading or running, and you're like, I'd rather kill myself than run. When Jesus describes himself as the bread of life, which will fully satisfy all of your longings, your eternal hunger for righteousness, most hear this because they scoff, I, I need him for my righteousness. I need something else besides me for my righteousness. You're forced to make a decision. The Son of God, the second person, the triune Godhead, tells you, I am what you need. So it doesn't come from yourself. And presuming, which is, kind of goes against kind of the cultural narrative and what's kind of, I think it's in your heart too, you need. You need something. You're actually not good in yourself. There's something outside of you that you need. And many leave, both in John 6, when they hear this, they leave Jesus today as well. But Jesus promises you, just like he did with the Samaritan woman, we're going to see there's some parallels with the Samaritan woman. He promises the Samaritan woman, when you eat of me, when you partake of me, you're never going to hunger again. Ever. We're not used to that. We don't know what that feels like. We don't know what to never hunger again feels like. You will truly live. And then we're now at the other piece of the bread, because I call this, John 6 is kind of like a sandwich. First part is when he gives the bread to the 5,000, and then the second piece of bread is bread of life, and that little meaty portion is Jesus walking on water. They're kind of two connected stories. Jesus promises to feed you with himself as he led or as he fed his wandering followers the bread. But this feeding is never going to end. He doesn't just feed you once and say, I think you're good. He continually feeds you, continually gives you food. And we're going to see this in three points. First is a sign of bread, verses 25 through 40. Jesus' miracles are not bare signs. He tells you, don't just look at these signs. Don't just look at the bread. He says, look at me, whom the bread points to. And then second is eating of this bread, verses 41 through 58. You have the same choice that these had in John 6. Will you eat of this Savior? Will you partake of Jesus? Will you confess him? Or are you going to mock him? It's not, you don't have, there's no middle ground. It's either mocking or partaking. And lastly is life from this bread, verses 59 to 71. 
when you've partaken of Jesus, when you've eaten of him, when you've been satisfied by him, that means you've been given by God to him. You eating isn't the thing that God does or God uh, that he works off of. It's a thing that shows you that you've been given to Jesus. And so I pray this becomes clear throughout. Jesus is the bread given to you that you might eat and enter into his life and be sustained in him. So first point, beginning of verse 25, sign of bread. Look at verse 25, begins with this connection, because what did he say verse 25, when they found him, the crowd does, on the other side of the sea, they said, Rabbi, when did you get here? Remember, this is right after he walks on water. They're like, how did you walk on water? There's no boat for you to walk, or there's no boat for you to go across this, because he's coming from across the sea after feeding the 5,000, walks on water, and then we come to this. So John's connecting these three. The crowd who were fed earlier in John 6 that received him after he crossed the Sea of Galilee. And they've been satisfied. They had their fill. Eating the bread. Got what Jesus provides. And notice what Jesus asked them. Very next verse. It's the same crowd he had talked to beginning in John 6. Do you want me or what I gave you? Just gave you bread and yeah, you're satisfied. Is that why you're coming to me? Because you're satisfied in the thing I gave you, or you're satisfied in me? He asked the same thing in John 4 to the royal official, the end of John 4. Same exact question. Do you come to me because I, I showed you science, some cool stuff? you like me because of the things I do? Or do you like me because of me? It says, you've eaten of this physical bread, and you will come back hungry. But spiritual bread... You have not eaten. And you'll never have to hunger again. The beginning of this also kind of sounds like the beginning of John 4, which is the Samaritan woman. If you switch out the bread of life with water, it's effectively the same discourse. Because the Samaritan woman is looking for water. He says, if you go to me, if you go to the eternal water, you will never thirst again. And now he uses bread to the Jews. Jesus, the Son of Man, who has come from heaven, which is John 5, is all about this, to do the will of the Father, gives this to you. And what's shocking is the Samaritan woman actually has a better response. A Canaanite, somebody from Samaria, has a better response than the Jews to the same question. It says, don't stop at the bare sign. I fed you. You saw this. You saw this miracle. I fed you. You're satisfied right now. Your stomach's full. You're good to go. He says, but don't stop there. Don't stop at the physical. And yet, what, the, what does the crowd ask Jesus after he says this? What must we do? They're still looking for more stuff. All we do is receive. That's what, that's what they're asking. Is like, that's all we do? All we do is receive from you. Like, we don't play any part in this. We don't do anything. You might be asking the same thing. Like, like, I have to play some part in this. I have to do something. And you can kind of see where Paul gets a doctrine of the law and the gospel here, especially in Galatians, in Jesus' answer to this question. 
says, what you must do is be right with God versus what has been done that you are made right with God. Because again, what does the crowd ask? What must we believe? What must we do? Very different question than what must we believe. And Jesus responds in verse 29. Does he respond with, this is what you must do? He responds with, this is what you must believe. You believe in him whom he has sent. That's the other half of saying, this is the work of God. And you're kind of expecting, okay, what do I do? But he tells you, this is what you believe because that's the work of God. Your belief is the results of the work of God. But <laughs> notice, notice what they ask in response in verse 30. Why is this so remarkably ignorant? They just saw something. That's two stories ago. In this narrative, it's probably a night ago. Probably saw it the other morning. They're asking, what signs did we see? He's like, I just showed you signs. I just showed you a bunch of signs. Now you're still asking for more signs. This is the same crowd who was fed at the beginning of John 6. And they're like, what sign did we see that we know that you're son of God? It's like, did you not just see what I did for you? Did you not just see who, I, who I'm identifying with? And they who grumbled against Moses, it kind of sounds like this now. Because they ask about their fathers. You know, our, our fathers were in the wilderness and they asked for food. Those aren't the people you want to be associated with. People who grumbled against Moses in Exodus 16, telling Moses, you know what, Moses? It was better in slavery than the wilderness with Jesus, wilderness with Yahweh. That's who they're identifying with. Our fathers received because they grumbled. They didn't receive because obviously God was gracious, but he was gracious in response to their grumbling. And how does Jesus respond in verses 32 to 33? They're not ultimately grumbling against Moses. They're not even in Exodus nor in John. They're not grumbling against Moses. They're grumbling against Jesus, against Yahweh. Because Yahweh is the one who showered down manna from the heavens in response to their grumbling to point to the Son of Man, the bread of God, who comes down from heaven the same exact way. Because it's supposed to point them. Don't just look at the bread. Don't just look at the manna. Know that my son is going to come down from heaven the same way that this bread does. And you're going to still see this, this, this kind of interplay between the sign and the thing signified. And Jesus is really playing on this. Don't just stop at the sign. Go to the thing that signifies. See, you start seeing how similar this is to when he talks to the Samaritan woman from John 4. Notice what the crowd pleads in verse 34. Sir, it's the same word, it's curios for Lord. It's the same way that the Samaritan woman begins her question. Give us this bread always. You switch that out with water, it's the same exact thing the Samaritan woman asks. So I don't want to go out here anymore. I don't want to be exposed. I don't want people to know that I'm the one who's an adulterous woman who's going out to the well. Give me this, please. 
And they said, we'll never hunger again. We want to still grumble. We're never going to hunger again. And so Jesus continues much the same way. Again, this is, if you parallel these two stories, they're almost the same exact story. Verses 35 to 40. Jesus tells the Samaritan woman in verse 14 of chapter 4, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And then here, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You will never hunger for eternal life. So the similarities are pretty striking. And he combines the Yahweh formula, this is Exodus 3, I am who I am, whom he gave to Moses. He says, I am who I am, the bread of life. Yahweh is the bread of life. Yahweh who gave to your fathers in the desert amidst, and despite their grumbling, still gave. You can kind of see Paul's Romans 5, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Yahweh says, while you were still grumbling, I fed you. While you're still against me, I fed you. This bread never metabolizes, it never expels from you, it stays in you. Never leaves. He's telling him, you see, you see me. They see him right now, you see this physical body. He says, but do you see Yahweh? See me, but see Yahweh. That's who I am in the flesh. A man a true man, but not merely a man. As the physical manna came down from heaven, because that's a physical thing. It wasn't just kind of spiritualized and they felt like they're eating something. Actual manna came down from heaven. As the son of man, the son of God has come down from his father to feed all those on earth. But Jesus does not come down to stay down. Doesn't come down like the prophets, doesn't come down like the kings, and is buried and is dead. But Jesus does not come down to stay down. He comes down to go back up and to bring you back up with him. The bread from heaven came down to revive Israelite bodies, but they still died. Only those who trust in Yahweh through his appointed mediator, Moses, that the bread actually shows them that you can live. And Jesus tells you, if you have trusted in me, that's the sign that my Father has given you to me. It's not your trust that triggers God. God gave you, and that triggers your hunger. The Father giving you to the Son is how you come and trust in Jesus. And the grip your Father has on you isn't like an earthly father's grip, isn't like any other person's grip. This grip is eternal. doesn't stop, doesn't ever move from tightened around you, doesn't cease, it won't loosen, and is your guarantee that you will rise with the Son. Him holding you is your guarantee. Your hunger is your guarantee. Jesus is the bread of life. And so have you eaten of this bread of life? We're going to see this in point two, eating this bread. Starting in verse 41, like words you need to hear, but you're either, if you're like me, 
talking to my wife, too stubborn to listen, or too prideful to accept, the crowd now ominously dubbed the Jews. It's not a new group in verse 41. It's the crowd who now John gives them the new name of Jews, which you know the gospel of John is not a good name you want on yourself. It's not how you want to be dubbed. They're grumbling like there are ancestors in the wilderness. They, they see the, the person, the man of Jesus, born of the woman, certainly not a virgin in their eyes, Mary, son of Joseph, but they don't see the substance of the Son of God. They stumble at the substance. They hear what he's telling him, this is what I actually am. They just see the sign, they just see the thing in front of them, the physical thing, it's like, I can't move beyond that. They have no question, no question about the physical man. They see him right in front, they're not docetic, they're not just looking at some spiritual illusion, they see an actual human man in front of them, but they don't see Yahweh. The thrice holy God for them, that's, that's too pure to take on human flesh. No way the Lord takes on human flesh. He's got, he's got concerns way higher than me, way higher than flesh, way higher than sin. But you need to take a human person, Jesus does, to take upon human sinfulness. It's, it's something that kind of doesn't compute for them. They're not really worried about sinfulness. They're probably worried more about, like, let's take over Rome. They're not really worried about raising human bodies to be tempted as humans, which is what Jesus has to do to take on human flesh. Take on your mindset. He has to be a human person. But sure, they're, they're used to the human priest making atonements of other things that they put on the altar. But they're not used to a human priest offering himself. But that's precisely what you and I need, and which is why they're grumbling. You're a man claiming to be God. There's no way this is working. And Jesus knows the grumbling of their heart. He knows the grumblings of your heart. And he responds in verses 43 to 46. He knows your doubts, and he knows your struggles. He knows their doubts, and he knows their struggles. He knows that tug of war between the desires of this mortal body that you're in right now and the desires of the new man or new woman he's given you. He knows that. He knows what you're going through. For this heavenly knowledge, the ability to see the substance, the Son of God in the flesh, it comes from God's call. It's not just something you conjure within yourself. You don't just reason towards it. You're given this. Verse 44 says, No one can come to me, Jesus, except the Father calls him. You probably know this verse by heart. There's no reasoning to God. There's no working towards him. There's no progressing in holiness that he kind of picks you out of the crowd. It's like, that one looks pretty good. That one's working really hard. That one looks really holy. I'll take you. Likewise, on kind of you can call it the opposite end, he doesn't look at you and say, like, you're way too sinful. You got way too much going on in your heart. You've got too much messed up stuff in your background. I can't pick you. Because that would tarnish my that would tarnish my reputation. It's kind of like a 
Kind of like kid scissors trying to cut an iron bar. It's not how he looks at you. Both the sinner, he's saying this, who's made up a mess of their lives more beyond anything you could possibly imagine, says, God can't take me. And the saints, everyone who's seemingly done everything right, he, he levels that and says, no, it doesn't matter either of those things. I call. I call. Because the Father calls. And that alone allows you to feast on Jesus. Not your background, which is good. It's good that it's not your background. It's good that it's on him and him alone. And this is exactly what the prophets, this is not new to the New Testament. This is exactly how the prophets spoke. The finished law we implanted on your stony hearts. Because originally the law made your heart stony. But now the obeyed law is put on your heart. And now you're warm to the precepts and you're enlivened from a cold death. For if you've tasted and seen Jesus with spiritual eyes, what is remarkable is you've seen Yahweh with your spiritual eyes. Because that's who Jesus reveals. It's not like you see Jesus and you can't really see Yahweh. It's you see Yahweh through Jesus. You see him spiritually through Jesus. In verses 47 to 50, unlike what the crowd wants and probably unlike what you want, you don't see this through your work, but your belief. Because they asked him, sir, what, what do we have to do? He says, I'll tell you what you have to do, believe. And they're like, hold on a second. That's not what we asked. What do we do? Working your way to God the Father doesn't work. Believing that Jesus is the bread of God as the Israelites trusted in Yahweh for the provision and salvation when they received the manna, that's receiving the substance from the sign. Looking at the sign says, I want that substance that sign represents. Eating, even enjoying the bread, enjoying the words of Jesus, and how much they help you every day, which is kind of what they're thinking. He helped me. He fed me. Does nothing. Thinking he helps you morally does nothing. Thinking he feeds you does nothing. Living a better life, trying harder, doing more, will leave you breathless and hungry. Because their fathers ate the bread, they got hungry, and then they died. He says, do you want food that will never end? Do you want hunger that will go away? Food that will leave you satisfied? He says, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that no one may eat of it and die. The greatest, the most expensive, the most lavish and savory meal you have ever eaten in this temporary life leaves you hungry about 24 hours later. If you're me, three hours later. You're still going to be hungry. You're going to still want more. No matter how expensive, no matter how nice, no matter how well prepared, it's still going to leave you hungry. In fact, hungrier than before when you ate it. As a Samaritan woman had to in the heat of the day with the shame of her adulterous affair, you will come having to eat until your death without satisfaction because you cannot eat enough and you cannot do enough. Can't stuff yourself full because you will be hungry again. 
you must eat, craziest of all things, you must eat of the I am. You must eat of him. In verse 51. And the Jews, and some of you might mock at this, and said, eat flesh. You think you were cannibals, which is exactly how the early Christians were described. Early first and second century, when they heard about the Lord's Supper, like, you're cannibals. You fancy yourself the manna in the wilderness. They're asking Jesus, the true manna who provides all our needs, and they mock him. And they actually have precedent for saying this. Leviticus 17 through 13, 13 through 14 actually curses this. That you can't eat of this. That you can't drink blood. Specifically in the law, you cannot drink blood. You cannot drink the blood of anything living. There's a curse against anyone who drinks blood. So when Jesus says, drink my blood, you can kind of understand how they're thinking like, well, that's going to curse us, right? God's law curses that. Because the law of God prohibits the drinking of the blood of any animal or the flesh sacrificed for sins because that was for the priests. The priests ate at the sacrifice. You did not. Leviticus 17, though, follows after Leviticus 16. If you know Leviticus 16, that's the Day of Atonement. The annual sacrificial ceremony performed by the high priest atoned for the sins of the Israelites with the flesh and the blood of the sacrificed animal. And so what is Jesus doing? I'm that animal. I'm that sacrifice. They couldn't eat of it in the Old Testament because that would curse them. But I'm telling you, I came to take that curse so that you could eat me and be blessed. He reverses the curse and he blesses you. Before you would eat and you were cursed, now you eat to live. You eat to be sustained. Eating of him means that sacrifice was for you. You receive from the sacrifice now. As the priests ate the offering, as the priests ate the offering in the Old Testament, they ate the ascension offering. They ate all kind of the fat and all the good meat after this. And so you're told, you now eat of Jesus. What does that make you? Makes you priests. Makes you priests under the priest. Your fathers ate, Jesus says, only of the bread left unsatisfied and died. And you can substitute that. They were unregenerate and not believing. He's using death as unregenerate. But if you eat of me, you will live. The sign of this bread is Jesus and the eternal life he brings. Eating this bread enters you into this life. So what is this life and how do you enter into it? Our last point, life from this bread. What's interesting is John goes 34 verses from verse 25 through 59 without telling you where this was said. Jesus kind of goes on this monologue. And if you were in this early time, you would wonder, like, where is he speaking this? Before you're told in the plains, in the grassy area, he talks to the 5,000. He's in the water when he talks to the disciples. But you're not told where he's 
tells this right until the very last verse. And he says, Jesus spoke these things in the synagogue. The Jewish house of worship. So, so imagine this with me. You can kind of skip through this really fast. Like, oh, cool, synagogue, let's move on. But the temple from John 1 is in the temple for the first time outside of the wedding of Cana when he's kind of in the courts of the temple. He's now actually in the temple for the very first time in the Gospel of John. And he tells the Jews, everything you do points to me. You can imagine this is probably the most radical sermon that they've ever heard in their entire life. And those listening, they couldn't stand it. And hard, this saying is hard, is not, it's not properly like, this is hard to understand. It's like, this grates against me. This is abrasive. This is heavy on me. You can see, there, who is able to hear this? Who, who's able to eat of this man? This seems impossible. And he knew Jesus does. His disciples, they're grumbling at this words. And he kind of separates disciples from the twelve. Those who've been following him. So it's a broader group than the twelve. There's a lot of people following him. There's the twelve and then the broader group. Because they liked him for his signs. They liked him for what he did. He's, if you follow through the gospel, he's kind of interesting to follow. He does some pretty crazy stuff. And they follow him because he does some pretty crazy stuff. But they're following him not because he's Jesus, but because of what he does. In verse 62, he asked them, this is a hard saying for you? He's like, basically just saying, just you wait. I'm about to raise. That's going to be a lot harder to take in. Son of man is about to go up. That's a much bigger deal than what I've just done. My resurrection will be impossible for you to understand. Because Jesus has come to lift you up. That's why this bread is here. The bread comes to the stomach to kind of sustain and lift up your soul. It's like I've come to actually lift you up. Actually bring you up. I've come to give you life because I am life. This bread I fed you with a sign is, is a sign of my life. It kind of imparts life to you in a sense. You trust in it as you eat food and you will live. But some of those who were troubled by Jesus' words, they left. Because Jesus knows what's in your heart. He knows what's in their heart. And he knew who would betray him. But doesn't leave yet. Those who formerly walked with him when he performed those signs and wonders you read about in John 2 to 6, those who are following him, saying, These are pretty cool things. It's a pretty cool guy. He does some pretty cool stuff that look really cool. But this is too hard. I'm going to leave. They said, what you, what you did, we liked. But who you are, we don't like so much. So we end in verses 67 to 71 with the 12 who do stay, but not all of them believe. And Jesus asked them, if they will leave like the others. But Simon Peter responds in the same way I hope you respond. 
where else do I go? I can get life for a little bit, but I can't get eternal life. The sharp edge of your law hurts. It kills me. But your gospel is the only thing that heals it. What, like, where else do I go for healing it? We don't want just temporary life. We want eternal life. So Peter confesses, the first disciple to say this, you are the Holy One of God. Before we get too hyped up on Peter, he's the first one to deny Jesus at the end. First one to confess and then first one to deny. We have eaten your bread, but most importantly, we have partaken of you because the Father has chosen you. And like Peter, we don't know everything. You don't know everything. Nor is your picture completely filled out with Jesus, of who he is, what he's done, what he's come to do. He's not looking for perfect, complete, absolute knowledge. What he is looking for is that you believe. Not how filled out your belief is, not how filled out your doctrine of Christ is, that you believe in the right Christ, that you have belief, however small that belief is. You taste Jesus because you've been given to Jesus. And yet, who does he keep around? He knows Judas is going to betray him. So it's remarkable that he keeps Judas around. He knows the devil's working through Judas. Why would Jesus keep Judas around? If he knows he's the son of perdition, he knows he's the one who's going to leave, and he's the one who's going to give him over. Why, like, why does he keep him around? Because what is Adam told to do in the garden? Kick that thing out. Don't have the devil in your presence. Don't let him tempt you. But Jesus keeps the devil around. You can kind of look at Judas as like his toy. He's like, Satan, you think you hold all the power. I can control you. I'm going to keep you around, not for your purpose. I'm going to keep you around for my purpose. Jesus says, I actually need you, devil. I actually need you, Judas, for my plan, not for your plan. Because he has dominion over the devil. The devil is trying to do his own thing through Judas. But Jesus says, I got other plans for you. Kind of like Job. Where the devil asks at the prompting of God. Where he says, hey, why don't you use this guy? And that's what Jesus is doing here. I'm going to use you. Jesus' will, the will of the Father, that's going to be accomplished. And if all things is be accomplished when the devil gives him over, that's when his will is accomplished. And both you and I will be raised up through the Spirit with and to him. And so I ask, if you eat of this bread, that you may never go unsatisfied. Because Jesus is your soul satisfaction. Who did what you could never do and guarantees he will never lose you. Ever. God the Father will use all things, just like he keeps Judas around. He knows that's the one that's going to betray me, and he keeps him around because he has dominion over him. So he has dominion over you in all things. He directs all things, he works all things for your good in his Son, and guarantees you, the spirits, that you might know this for certain that you will be raised at the end with Jesus.
taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray. <coughs> Lord, you are so good and so gracious to us. The things we don't want to hear are the things that are good for us. You cause us to hear. You cause us to come close. You cause us to eat. Lord, that hunger within us is not, not a sign that we're far off from you. It's a sign that we've been purchased by you. Because we would have no hunger if we did not have you. We'd be hungering for the wrong things. But Lord, our hunger for righteousness, our hunger for justice, our hunger that we are not enough and we need you, is our sign that we are yours. And we thank you. Give us our daily bread every single day. Sustain us until you come back. We will partake of you fully and eternally. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. All these things in your son's name. Amen.